This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. We are almost there, folks. Election Day in the U.S. is less than a week away. It's the final stretch. Just hold on a bit longer. Now, to lighten the mood of what has seemed like an eternal election cycle, it seemed only appropriate to look back on some of the great culinary traditions of the White House. Now, of course, there are the serious and elegant state dinners. The history of chefs and cooks in the White House is a wonderful one, too. The culinary historian Adrian Miller is about to come out with a great book on black chefs in the White House called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. But alongside those great dinners and creative chefs, there are also, of course, the, well weird and wacky food stories. Those that seem to inevitably pop up whenever power and food get together. And the White House, well, it's certainly no exception. Now, if you're a fan of that great TV show, The West Wing, you may already know one wacky White House food tradition. Now, back in the 90s, when The West Wing originally aired, President Bartlett's snarky staff would refer to block of cheese day, when the president would invite special interest groups to the White House to discuss their issues. Now, the obscure historical reference, which is now beloved by fans of the series worldwide, referred to a real-life White House tradition that dated back to the early 19th century, when President Andrew Jackson placed a two-ton block of cheese in one of the front rooms of the White House, inviting anyone who wanted a wedge to come in, help themselves, and maybe get a chance to talk to the president about anything on their mind. Now, love of this fictional and real-life tradition apparently even included the current real-life White House staff. In 2014 and 2015, the White House, that is the real White House, held a block of cheese day in mid-January. Although, this being the 21st century, folks weren't actually invited to the White House to have a slice of cheddar or gouda, but instead were treated to a live chat with various members of the Obama administration. Although, I suppose, nothing stopped people from munching a piece of feta while typing their questions. I love the idea of a giant block of cheese just hanging out in a front room of the White House. It's a really pleasing look back to a more open and approachable time in American politics, when you could just drop by the White House for a nibble and a chat with the commander-in-chief. Since then, of course, the White House has walked a difficult road between providing a safe environment for the president, his family, and staff, while also trying to maintain the atmosphere of openness and approachability. And it's been no easy feat to try and keep the perfect balance at all times. The Secret Service over the years have floated and eventually rejected a host of additional security measures to the White House. Barbed wire, electric fences, even a moat. Yes, a moat. But all inevitably were rejected 
because they would have gotten in the way of the perception of the White House as an open, accessible, democratic government building. One in theory, open to any citizen who wanted to voice an issue, or maybe just looking for a tasty, cheesy snack. So thanks to the West Wing and the Obama administration's apparent love of cheese, many folks today might have heard of Jackson's hunk of cheese. But by no means was it the first oversized cheese gift in U.S. history. Back in 1786, during the Revolutionary War, the grateful whalers of Nantucket sent a 500-pound cheese to General Lafayette, apparently in recognition of his efforts to reduce French taxes on American whale oil. Now, I'm not sure why cheese was deemed the appropriate thank you gift in this case. And it's also completely unclear what Lafayette did with all the cheese. Regardless, this first thank you cheese seems to have prompted a whole wacky tradition of giving strange and oversized gifts to American leaders, a tradition that has lasted to modern day. For example... If you've seen the movie National Treasure, you'll know that Queen Victoria once gave President Rutherford B. Hayes a desk made from the wood of the British ship, the HMS Resolute, now known famously as the Resolute Desk. Apparently, gifts to the president were such a frequent and often odd occurrence that an entire division of protocol was established in 1928 to advise would-be gift givers on things that were, and more usually weren't, appropriate to give the president of the U.S. of A. This was even more fully developed in the fully-fledged Foreign Gifts and Declarations Act of 1966, sponsored apparently by some particularly generous offers from Saudi Arabian princes to bestow upon the commander-in-chief expensive cars and some thoroughbred horses. But even with official caps set on the value of presidential gifts, This often doesn't stand in the way of generous political leaders finding creative ways of getting around the regulations. In 2003, George W. Bush received 300 pounds of raw lamb from Argentina. President Obama received a shamrock plant from the Irish Prime Minister in 2010. And really, who can put a price on clover? As of 2014, the official monetary limit on gifts to the president was valued at $375. Now, that might get you a very nice bottle of wine, but it's a good thing Hayes got that resolute desk when he did. The new policy on smaller gifts has led to some embarrassing moments for both gift giver and the recipient. Like Obama's infamous gift of a collection of American DVDs to Queen Elizabeth II, back in 2009. Making matters somewhat worse, the DVDs were set to play only on U.S. DVD players, making the gift even more awkwardly useless. Maybe he should have stuck to cheese. Today on the feast, we're heading back to the birthplace of presidential cheeses. Back before Andrew Jackson's legendary two-ton Gouda, to the first recorded giant cheese given to a sitting U.S. president, Thomas Jefferson, in 1802. Now, how and why Jefferson found himself the recipient of one of the largest cheeses ever made in the United States is one that gets beyond simple issues of curds and whey. While not as big as Jackson's, arguably Jefferson's cheese 
weighed much heavier on the political issues of the day. A cheese spurred into creation by some of the defining matters of early American politics. The role of church and state, states' rights versus a unified federal government, even more. Weighty matters for a whey product. Now, I swear that's the last cheese pun. Really. So to understand how a giant yellow cheese wheel weighing in at a monstrous 1,235 pounds, emblazoned proudly with Jefferson's personal motto, Rebellion to Tyrants is Obedience to God, happened to find itself on the front doorway of the White House one cold January morning in 1802? Well, it's a bit of a funny story. Now, to get a better picture of how this cheese came to be, let's head back two years to the presidential election of 1800. Now, if you think this year has been tough, the battle for the presidency in 1800 was one for the record books, by far the bitterest race in the young nation's history. The fight to become the third president of the United States of America threatened to basically tear the country apart. George Washington, of course, had been a natural choice for the first president of the new republic, and even John Adams, another founding father, and Washington's vice president, signer of the Declaration of Independence, was a clear fit to be next in line. But who was going to be third? Trouble was brewing. You see, ideas about how the country should be run were dividing sharply along two major party lines, known at the time as Federalists and Republicans. Now, John Adams, for example, had been a staunch Federalist, calling for a strong national government, one that sat above the individual state governments, making decisions that would affect the entire country. Many other founding fathers had also been Federalists, including, as a certain hit musical has told us, one Alexander Hamilton, with his calls for a national bank and consolidated debt, things he argued that would help knit the young country together. Now on the other side of the aisle were the Republicans. Actually, their full title was the Democratic Republican Party, but for the most part they were known simply as Republicans. Republicans, championed by such folks as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, argued strongly for states' rights, denouncing, among many other things, the Federalist plans for a national bank. This political divide ran deep, since the issue struck so profoundly at how the country was going to be run on a very basic level. So less than 30 years after the Declaration of Independence, the United States was already deep into political conflict. The Republicans had lobbied hard to win the presidency away from John Adams and his Federalists. Now the fight was between two Republicans, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, one destined for president, the other vice president. In a stunning move during the election, Alexander Hamilton had supported Jefferson, abandoning his former friend Burr and the rest of the Federalists to their shock. The betrayal had opened up a permanent rift between the two former friends, Hamilton and Burr, one that of course would end with the famous duel that would claim Alexander Hamilton's life only four years after the election. Now, even back in the 19th century, party lines often ran parallel to geography. Jefferson's Republican Party, for example, 
was popular throughout the southern states, including, of course, his native Virginia. Meanwhile, most of New England was deep-seated Federalist territory, the longtime home of the Mayflower Puritan pilgrims. Their descendants, still living in the new state of Massachusetts, had more or less kept to their original Puritan beliefs, except now they were more frequently known as Congregationalists. And many of Massachusetts's laws had been written to support the faith of its early colonists, supporting the Congregationalist church through local taxes, sometimes going so far as to fine or even imprison any preacher who wasn't part of the Congregationalist faith. Now tucked away in the far northwest corner of Massachusetts, almost at the New York border, was the small village of Cheshire. Now unlike most of the state, they weren't Congregationalists, but Baptists. Now Baptists as a community for a long while had been hanging out over in Rhode Island, even founding a college there in 1760s, now known today as Brown University. And around that time, around 1760 or so, small groups had started to move out of that region and settle in other parts of New England, including, of course, Cheshire. Now, for a while, the differences between the two faiths hadn't really made much of a difference. After all, for much of the 1770s and 1780s, there was a little thing called the Revolutionary War going on. But after the war was over, the Baptists continually found themselves at the wrong end of Massachusetts state law. Because they weren't Congregationalists, it meant that the villagers of Cheshire frequently found themselves subject to fines or other legal penalties for not practicing the faith of their neighbors. They also complained that their tax dollars, again according to Massachusetts law, were going to repair only Congregationalist churches in the area. But for the time, there was little they could do about it. Getting a Baptist elected to state government didn't look likely. They were basically a drop in the bucket compared to the far more numerous Congregationalist communities in the state. No, if the Baptists of Cheshire had any chance for change, they'd have to look to someone who could change things from the national level to force the states to abandon any laws that favored one religion over another. And in a very bizarre twist of fate, that someone ended up coming in the most unlikely form of the very champion of states' rights, the dyed-in-the-wool Republican Thomas Jefferson. Now I know, Thomas Jefferson, proud defender of states' rights, may have seemed like an unusual choice for the Cheshire villagers, trying to get religious laws off the books in Massachusetts. But Jefferson wasn't just about states' rights. If any other cause was close to his heart, it was his fundamental belief in the separation between church and state. Now, this is a phrase you often hear in modern U.S. politics, but during the election of 1800, it was a fairly contentious issue. Of course, the U.S. Bill of Rights guaranteed the freedom of religion throughout America, but the actual role of religion in government, well, that was still a matter up for debate. Jefferson, whose own religious allegiances were murky at the best of times, had continued to argue strongly that religion had no role in government, a view not exactly popular in much of the Federalist North. 
But Cheshire was all in. Almost 100% of the votes cast from that year were for Jefferson. And in almost every election thereafter, Cheshire voted exclusively Republican, sometimes without a single vote cast for the Federalists in the entire town. Cheshire became so well-known for the Republican support that when an odd Federalist vote did show up in the Cheshire ballot box, it was considered an error and thrown out. But I know what you're thinking. What do states' rights, the separation between church and state, have to do with cheese? Stick with me. The cheese is coming. See, after Jefferson defeated Aaron Burr and was officially sworn into the office of president on March 4th of 1801, understandably, Cheshire was pretty excited. Their candidate was in the White House. The religious laws of Massachusetts were soon to be a thing of the past. Surely they should celebrate this momentous occasion, show their appreciation to the president who shared their ideals. But as always, what do you get the man who has everything? Well, a massive cheese wheel, of course. Now, it's not exactly clear who in Cheshire first came up with the idea. Maybe they had heard about those grateful Nantucket whalers and their cheese gift to Lafayette back in the 1780s. There was even a story about the original Cheshire, back in England, who had celebrated King George III's return to health with a 900-pound cheese, apparently made in a six-foot-wide vat with a cider press. So it seems cheese was the go-to appreciation gift of the early 1800s, the chocolate-dipped fruit bouquet of its time. And after all, Cheshire in the heart of the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, was in perfect cheese-making country. Now, this was long before any factory or processed cheese, of course. Cheese-making was still made very much on the small scale, usually by the ladies of a village or town. And communities were often fiercely proud of their local product. Tonight on NBC... Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Just like today, claims about the superior quality of the local cows, the terroir of a particular meadow where they grazed, its unique weather and soil, all went into friendly rivalries about who could make the superior product. Presenting a homemade cheese to the president at the White House would not only be a great sign of Cheshire's approval of Jefferson's ideas about church and state, but it would be the public relations coup of the century, a way to show off Cheshire's dairy prowess on the national level. Although the people of Cheshire had probably been making cheese for decades, making a single giant presidential cheese understandably needed a bit more preparation than usual. 
they would need not only all the cows in Cheshire for the task, but more importantly, they would need a gigantic cheese press to form the thing. Also, the cheese would need time to age. Even if they had started planning in March of 1801, right after Jefferson's inauguration, there would be no reasonable way to get the cheese ready before January of 1802 at the earliest. And then, of course, there would be the whole matter of getting the cheese to Washington, not exactly next door to northwestern Massachusetts. And really, there's no better way to enjoy a New England winter than moving a giant 1,200-pound cheese from state to state. Now a number of tales have come down about just how much preparation went into this cheese. A formal census, for example, was taken of all the cows in Cheshire, around 900 in total. Later, Cheshire villagers would proudly state that they had only used good Republican cows to make the presidential cheese. No Federalist cows allowed. But in order to make the cheese, all the cows would have to be milked more or less at the same time, with the curds going into a giant cheese press. Well, that was the other issue, of course. Where on earth was Cheshire going to find a press big enough for the project? On this, they seemed to take a page from their counterparts in England, who had used a hard cider press for their cheese to King George. Now, thankfully, Cheshire's villagers were also fans of a stiff drink now and again. The local farmer, Elijah Brown Jr., just happened to have a cider press on his farm. It would take some modification, of course. Thankfully, Elijah's nephew Darius was apparently up for the job, building a four-feet-wide, 18-inch-deep wooden cheese hoop that would be fitted into the press to hold the cheese together. July 20th, 1801 was declared a local holiday in the town to allow for each of the residents to bring their curds to the press. Local housewives had been given explicit instructions to inspect their cow's curds to ensure only the finest were selected for the presidential cheese. All the residents of Cheshire headed to Brown's farm that day, bearing their curds in buggies, bags, and barrels. After another serious inspection of the curds, they were salted and seasoned with local herbs and tossed into the cheesecloth-lined hoop. The screw of the press was turned down, and as the way gushed out, the local preacher, Elder John Leland, formally blessed the cheese and dedicated it to President Thomas Jefferson, before leading the whole town in a hymn or two. And that really was that. The cheese was taken from the press after 11 days and set up in a home in the middle of Cheshire Village, where it would sit and age for the next few months. Now, even getting the cheese from the farm to the village was an undertaking, apparently. The town was so thankful the cheese had survived the journey, they held a community feast to celebrate. But for the most part, their job was done. The cheese would sit in the village until December, when it would start its long journey to Washington. The preacher, Elder John Leland, had volunteered for the duty of taking the cheese to the capital. Not for his expertise in cheese-moving, necessarily, but as the local preacher, he was the unofficial spokesman for the town, the person who could represent the town to the president, congratulating Jefferson on his election and showing him the support of Cheshire, particularly with regard to that whole separation of church and state issue. It also helped that John Leland knew Jefferson, or so he claimed, having spent some time down in Virginia, 
Apparently, Leland even lived next door to Monticello for a time. So when December and the snow arrived in Massachusetts, it was finally time for the cheese to make its slow journey south. The cheese was placed on a giant sled and hauled all the way to Hudson, New York, about 50 miles. Now that's a distance you could probably easily cover today in about an hour on the interstate. At the time, it probably took the better part of a day, maybe even two. But even with the best horses, I can't imagine dragging a giant 1,200-pound cheese through the snow for that distance was a walk in the park. And fun fact, when you are dragging a gigantic cheese behind you, you tend to draw a bit of a crowd. Now, news of the cheese had already spread beyond Cheshire during the fall. A nearby town newspaper seized upon the cheese story, writing a biblical-style account of its creation in late September, calling it The Great Cheese. But the name just wasn't good enough. Cheshire wanted a name for the cheese that would stick out in people's minds. Well, Cheshire couldn't have timed its cheese gift any better. That very year in 1801, Charles Wilson Peel had unearthed an almost complete skeleton of a mastodon in upstate New York. Now, Jefferson, a longtime lover of science, had helped to sponsor the dig and proudly helped to publicize the discovery of what Peel had taken to calling mammoth bones. Mammoth quickly became the word of the year to describe anything unusually sized. Newspapers immediately put two and two together, and thus the Mammoth Cheese was born. John Leland even earned the nickname the Mammoth Preacher, not due to his own size, apparently he was perfectly average, but just because of his association with the cheese. So as Leland and the Mammoth Cheese traveled south, even more people learned about the story often turning out just to watch the sled bearing the massive dairy product go by. When they reached Hudson, the cheese was loaded onto a boat and carried downriver to New York City. Now, Leland and the other members of the cheese crew, or so I'm calling them, were apparently happy for the attention. Leland apparently often used the crowds gathered around the cheese as opportunities to do a little bit of spontaneous preaching. But even he knew when to say when. One in New York, a circus generously offered Leland $1,000 if they could display the cheese as part of their act for 12 days. But Leland turned them down flat. His eyes were fixed solidly on Washington. So by December 30th, the cheese had made it to the U.S. Capitol. By some accounts, ridden into town on a wagon drawn by six white horses. Now, how exactly Jefferson learned that he was to be given a mammoth cheese isn't exactly clear. Certainly over the course of the month of December, he probably could have read about it in any newspaper. It's also likely that someone in Cheshire had thought to write to the White House to let them know the cheese was coming. But when Leland and his cheese crew finally arrived in Washington, it probably did occur to them that they might not want to just ride up to the front gates of the White House unannounced. Leland had wanted to present the cheese formally on New Year's Day, which gave them about two days to plan. Now in one story, which sounds much more like a tall tale, one of the wagon drivers from Cheshire who had accompanied the cheese 
impetuously drove to the White House by himself, knocked on the door, and somehow ended up securing an audience with President Jefferson that very day. Now, according to the story, Jefferson was so delighted that the wagon driver had been worried about catching the president unaware with the cheese. In any case, the formal cheese-presenting ceremony was scheduled according to Leland's wishes on January 1st. The cheese was wheeled into the East Room of the White House, one of the biggest rooms available, and for years afterwards known as the Mammoth Room, although it's not clear if the name referred to the size of the room or the cheese it once contained. Leland made the official speech to the president before a number of invited guests, and Jefferson thanked Leland and the people of Cheshire for the generous gift, praising their hard work and, of course, their support of his administration. Some later accounts claim that Jefferson even insisted that the day was one of the happiest of his life. And, of course, there's no way to know if it's true, but if so, man, that guy really liked his cheese. Of course, the slicing and serving of such a cheese had to be done with a sense of occasion. With a signal from the president, the White House steward began to carve the red rind mammoth, distributing slices and pieces of bread to the assembled crowd. And the cheese was the talk of Washington for the next few days. Members of Congress dropped by the room to inspect the cheese. Nellie Custis, the granddaughter of Martha Washington and step-granddaughter of George Washington, made careful note in a letter how Federalist politicians disapproved strongly of the whole cheesy affair. And she wasn't the only one to notice. Federalists, completely unimpressed with Jefferson on the whole, hated how beloved Jefferson was amongst the Republican Party, who had a tendency to act kind of like early 19th century groupies. The cheese stunt was just the latest in a whole series of what they saw as ridiculous hero worship. In their eyes, an entirely inappropriate attitude towards a democratically elected leader. And if there's talk of media bias today in politics, well, let me assure you, it's nothing new. Many Federalist-leaning newspapers pounced on the chance to lampoon the cheese as a symbol of everything wrong with the Jefferson administration. The Philadelphia newspaper, called The Portfolio, even composed a poem about Jefferson and the cheese. In the poem, Jefferson compared the cheese to his own failings as a president. Like to this cheese my outside smooth and sound, when naught but rottenness within is found. Okay, I didn't say it was a particularly good poem. Maybe thanks to all the press the cheese was getting... America was soon overwhelmed with other mammoth-sized food events. A baker in Philadelphia advertised for mammoth bread, while a mammoth eater in Washington claimed he could down 42 eggs in 10 minutes. Two years later, Jefferson even found himself the recipient of yet another massive food gift, this time a mammoth loaf made by the official baker of the U.S. Navy and presented to him at the Capitol building in March of 1804. Apparently, the serving of the mammoth loaf was a bit wilder of an affair than the cheese ceremony of 1802. Guests tucked into roast beef and not small quantities of hard cider, wine, and whiskey as they helped themselves to the loaf. Stories about Jefferson at the party, drinking whiskey, and eating roast beef off his pocket knife circulated around the town for weeks afterwards. 
But what happened to the mammoth cheese itself? Well, apparently it sat in the East Room, now known, of course, as the Mammoth Room, for some time. No one was quite sure what to do with it. A portion of it had been sent back with Leland and the others to Cheshire so that the village could at least sample their work. But otherwise, it seemed that the cheese simply hung out in the East Room, available to anyone who wanted a slice. It was still there in January of 1803 when a visitor to the White House, the Reverend Dr. Cutler, remarked on how no more than 60 pounds of the cheese had been eaten, but that the cheese had now started to um, puff up a bit due to its decay. Not exactly an encouragement for anyone to sample more. After this, the cheese fades a bit from view. There's one story that it was actually still being served with hot punch to White House guests in 1805, which is frankly horrifying to think about. And the final resting place of the cheese isn't really known, although it's believed that it was the thankless job of some White House steward to dump the rest of the mammoth cheese into the Potomac. But, as far as the village of Cheshire was concerned, the cheese had done its job. They continued to come out in droves to support Jefferson and his Republican causes. The separation of church and state, of course, would become a benchmark of Jefferson's presidency, a belief encapsulated in his letter to another Baptist community of New England in 1802, dated ironically to the very day Leland and his band of Cheshire villagers presented him with a mammoth cheese. In that letter, we find the first examples of the actual phrase, a separation of church and state. We'll put up a link to that famous letter on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. And although the trend of mammoth-sized foodstuffs kept up for a few years after the mammoth cheese, it seemed that the tradition of giving dairy products to the president waned for a few years. Until, of course, the age of Andrew Jackson and the famous block of cheese day was born in the 1830s. John Leland and the Mammoth Cheese remained a beloved piece of Cheshire history. In the 1940s, a life-size concrete replica of the original cider press that made the cheese was erected in the middle of town. It's faded a bit in glory nowadays, apparently now defaced and located behind a bus stop bench, according to the University of Missouri scholar Jeffrey Pasley, who has done some great work on the history of the Mammoth Cheese. We'll put up a link to his work and some photos of what remains of that monument on the website. If you're interested in learning more about the great history of presidential and election food in the U.S., there's some great work out there, and not just about cheese. The Owl Bakery in Asheville, North Carolina, is spreading the word about the great American tradition of the election cake. Now, if you need a few sweet reasons to get out the vote on Tuesday, you can read all about their work and snag a few free recipes on their website, owlbakery.com. On the other side of the coin, did you know early American voting booths often offered free hard cider and whiskey to voters? Given this election year, maybe it's high time to revive that tradition. But, Feast listeners, at least you know my vote. Bring back the presidential cheese. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, 
who spent this week writing presidential cheese puns. It's not his fault. It's that time of Gruyere. Oh man, that's awful. Music featured on today's episode includes work by Fabian Measures, Julia Maxwell, Steve Combs, Unheard Music Concepts, Peter Rudenko, Jazzer, and Chris Zabriskie. You can find links to all their great work on our website. We'll also put all kinds of good stuff about the mammoth cheese, including some of the great 19th century poems and articles written about it at the time, on our website. If you're a fan of the feast, why not consider becoming a supporting member? Find out how to keep the show running by visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash feastpodcast. And we solemnly swear we won't spend any of the funds on cheese. That's our solemn promise to you. No cheese. That's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more delicious stories from the dining tables of history. Until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.